0: you asked about getting different opinions in the room and it reminded me of a really nice story about Barack Obama when he was trying to decide whether or not to go into libya and in those meetings i was actually lucky enough to take a tour of the white house with a friend who was in the administration and i got to see the room where those decisions happened i wasn't in the room where it happens but i saw the room where it happens
1: that's eric johnson he teaches at columbia business school at columbia university he's also the head of and seriously, this is real. The Center for Decision Sciences. Beyond that, he's the author of *The Elements of Choice*: Why the Way We Decide Matters.
0: There's a small table where all the principals, as they talk about them, sit. All, all the adults in the room. On the outside are the junior people. Now, those junior people are much more important than you and I to the world. Um, but they, they are, you know, assistant secretary, under secretary things like that, he started the meeting by saying, I want to start to hear from the kids, Hmm. the people on the outside of the room, because he suspected they would have a slightly different opinion than their bosses. So that's a really nice example of using the feel for the room to get an argument that wouldn't have been first out.
1: Barack Obama could run a room. He knew that dominant voices tend to determine decisions, and when it came to the room where it happens, the design of the space almost guaranteed senior voices would dominate. So he changed the design. Not spatially, but conversationally. He encouraged the junior advisors to go first. Obama was utilizing something known as choice architecture, or what Eric Johnson, a leading voice in the discipline, would call choice design.
0: Every time you're faced with a choice, there's been somebody who's been there before you. And they've made a bunch of decisions about how to present that choice to you.
1: Choice architecture represents an example of what journalist Michael Blastland calls the hidden half. There's what we know about a situation and what we don't know. And very often, what we don't know has tremendous power over the outcome. In the case of the decisions we make, there are countless ways the choice has already been stacked and not always to our benefit. If you're a business owner, the hidden half of decision-making has far more influence over your results than you realize. I spoke with Eric Johnson about some of those impacts and... I also wanted to hear what Full Focus CEO, Megan Hyatt Miller, and Chief Revenue Officer, Courtney Baker, had to say, especially when it comes to the hidden costs of these decisions. When you as the business owner are always solving problems, you might feel like you're doing your job, but what if you're actually undermining your business's long-term potential for growth? Megan and Courtney bring up three primary costs that you just might be missing. Development, depletion, and distraction. If you're not aware of how these costs are impacting your results, you're gonna wanna listen up. I'm Joel Miller, and this is the Business Accelerator Podcast, where we have one goal. We wanna help you scale yourself so you can scale your business.
2: All right, Ken. Do you know what's happening right now?
3: No, I have no idea.
2: <laughs> well, first of all, it's your favorite time of year. Finally, it's yes, we can act. Okay, like I give approval for us to actually listen to Christmas music now that Thanksgiving's over.
3: Jingle bells, jingle. Yes,
2: uh, it's our holiday sale here at Full Focus. Oh, and even we have better. some really awesome deals going on. Especially if, for some reason, you missed out on our Black Friday deals, this is a great time to get your planners and everything for the new year. And so we have got. Uh, some awesome deals so we've got 10% off site wide Um, we've got where you can get a free um, your best year ever vinyl sticker pack for any new planner subscription that you sign up for so these are great to put on things like your Stanley mug
3: wow you already put them on your Stanley mug
2: and if are you got them, them if you got them on Black Friday, these are different. These are these are going to be new for the new year. Uh, but they're great for that. You can also put them on your planner. You can put them on your computer wherever you want them.
1: He mentioned all the decisions that others make in advance of our
0: choices. So let me go through just a couple of those. One is how many options do I give you? Another is basically how to describe those options. If I don't present you with an option, it's very unlikely that you choose it. So if it's not on the menu and you don't know all the off the menu secrets, you know, the menu itself limits what you're going to choose. And so choice architecture is essentially the art of designing those choices.
1: Well, when you think about, things like menus. I also think about websites or labels or other sort of things that are very clearly designed. And yet I know that as, as I was reading your book, there are so many applications for live moments, not just designed things, but moments themselves. And I was especially thinking about meetings. And so I just thought I'd open that up. How do these dynamics affect interpersonal communication, especially in a business context?
0: Yeah, so I mean I talk a little bit in the book about, you know, conversation you might have with a wife or a significant other. But it's really much more powerful I think when there're multiple people there. And that's because the person running the meeting, the designer in this case, often actually seems to have less control, right? They don't say you speak now or you speak later. That's they can do a little bit of that, but they don't want to be too heavy-handed. But they also are choice architects. They're also designers. And there's something really important to realize that most people, when they're affected by design, don't know it. Right. And so actually, I I would argue the, the leader has much more power than not only the people in the room know, but probably that they even know.
1: That is an argument that you make throughout the book, that most of us are kind of just clueless about the design that we're walking through all the time. How can a leader be more purposeful about designing a meeting, for instance, or designing a set of choices?
0: Well, one thing which is true is just to be conscious of the impact of those decisions. We're usually, people are making choices, we're in meeting attendees, so we're not thinking about how the person leading the meeting is influencing us. We're busy trying to make the decision. And as a result, we don't learn and leaders don't learn about what that impact can be. It's a, It's actually sort of a very subtle ability that you have to observe from the outside, and very hard to do. Yeah. Um, so I think it's actually you know being aware of that, like just saying, th- let's think of it this way, there's a checklist of things the leader is doing. And that checklist would have things like, how many options do I present? What are the things that people should talk about, the characteristics of the options? And going through that checklist before that meeting would actually be a great sense of consciousness raising saying, oh my gosh, I have all these levers I don't know about. You'd have to go through the list because each of those has its own impact. Let Mm -hmm. me give you a really simple example. We'll come back to it in a little bit, which is just a default. What is the thing that is going to happen if there's no decision? Yeah. You know, on the web, we see these all the time with buttons that are pre-checked. Right. But in meetings, there's normally a status quo. There's something if we don't make a choice, we're going to pick the same thing. And that can be changed by the leader. The meeting could be described, I've been thinking about this for a little bit, as, okay, do we continue with the same vendor? What vendor do we switch to? Now, notice those are going to change very much how you think about the problem. In the first case, you're going to think about what are the experiences we have with this vendor and not bring to mind alternatives. And the second one, you'll probably think about what are the things that outside vendors can do that our current vendor doesn't do? So they're very different ways. And that's just one of the many lovers you have.
1: The question is the frame that is what helps set the choice up. So if you position that in a particular way, you're going to be steering the conversation a particular direction.
0: That's right. And the issue is that most people run meetings the way they saw them run, not Mm -hmm. how they want them to come out.
1: This gets to an idea that's in the book that I found really fascinating. In fact, two of them. Um, one is plausible paths, and the other is assembled preferences. Can you describe what those two uh, ideas are?
0: Yeah, the reason they're important is because most of the tools we're going to be talking about, about choice architecture, like defaults, like the order in which you present things, are going to take advantage of these two principles. Assembled preferences is actually even more powerful in a group because it's about what comes up, what is talked about. In individuals, you think about what comes to mind. And so what's top of mind is something you consider first. The interesting thing in a group, it could be whoever speaks first can actually help set the agenda, maybe for good or for bad.
1: At the start of a meeting, it's pretty typical. If uh, the meeting's well run, there's an agenda and there's a stated purpose, like the intended outcome of that meeting. That's going to govern – the meeting in terms of the primary goal. But as you mentioned, you may have an outspoken person in the group who asserts essentially another goal and they could derail the meeting.
0: Right. This is the balance that I think a leader has, has to really feel for is how much do I let people talk and how much do I direct them? Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is I think by being subtle and using choice architecture, you can do less direct steering. It's, sort of your, it's not as if it's like a huge engine. It's more like something you have to t- touch just a little bit to move.
1: Another tension that you talk about in the book is fluency and accuracy. And I wondered if you could describe those two. And then I just want to share like, where I see this pop up the most.
0: Fluency is essentially the fact that we often make decisions the way that's easiest, yeah, we all know the person in a meeting who wants the absolute best option to be picked. Yes, and and goes on forever to make sure you know understand the weakness of each of the other options.
1: It's very common to have people who, let's say, they just are lower in their risk aversion. They're fine with a handful of details, then make a quick call. Meanwhile, they work on teams with people that have higher risk aversion, and so they want to see all the information. Uh, whatever the all actually looks like. There's never all, right? You could never actually have enough. But let's say it is more exhaustive than the other person. Those two people have to somehow work together. And in a team environment, you may have really difficult decisions that involve some people that would tend towards a more fluent answer and other people that would tend towards a more accurate answer. How do you balance that?
0: It's a great challenge. One thing that I think works pretty well is asking a question of the people who are overly concerned about getting every detail right. Mm-hmm. You could say, how is that going to change the outcome? Great question. You know, how is that going to change the outcome? I mean, you know, occasionally I'll have um, someone working for me who's who I love because I'm not a particularly finely um, detailed thinker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think I'm more than confident, but I'm not going to get the last detail. And so, sometimes I want them to think that way because they'll catch something I'm going to miss. Yep. But to help them let go of those other details, I say, how is that going to change what we ultimately end up doing here? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's not. Okay, then let's move on.
1: So, if something's immaterial, you can just flag it and get going.
0: Yeah. Well, particularly saying if it's immaterial to this decision, you could even say, Look, there are contexts that would really make a difference, but here, how is that going to change what we end up doing?
1: What about a situation in a meeting where there are competing goals at play? Let's imagine we're in a meeting and the between you and the decision is alignment around a goal, and yet it does not seem like the people in the room are aligned around the goal.
0: It's interesting because part of that is there, what makes meetings and groups different than individuals. Mm-hmm. Is they can legitimately want different things out of the decision. I mean, a person faces conflict. They want the person who's tall and attractive and rich and everything. And they have to struggle with that. But that's kind of different than someone who these folks really want to go to the East Coast and these folks really want to go to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. They really individually have separate agendas. That's where a leader sort of has to bring out the conflict and try and raise it to another level. By that, I mean, you know, often those kind of conflicts have other attributes underlying them. And to get what is the common goal, the high, usually a higher level goal, makes a, a lot more sense and can make a sense of, of progress.
1: Is there a way a leader can use things like defaults to help deal with those goal uh, agenda related questions in advance?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there, there are a bunch of tools that are out there and we, we've talked a little bit more about defaults and others, But and we've talked a little bit about order. Mm-hmm. So example, if, if you think the people who want option A are doing better, the East Coast people, let's talk about the advantages of the East Coast first. Let's talk about the advantages of the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about the, advantage, the disadvantages of the East Coast and then the disadvantage of the West Coast. Order is going to have an influence. Yeah. There're going to be attributes, different properties, you know, cost of real estate, availability of the right kind of help. There could be lots of different things. You can cycle through those in a way that will influence the outcome saying, "Okay, let's first talk about X." So you're not talking about your feelings about the attributes. You're not choosing East Coast versus West Coast, but you're structuring the agenda in a way that's going to favor one versus the other. Important thing to notice, by the way, is you're going to do that whether you know you're doing it or not. Right. Absolutely. There's no such thing as a neutral choice architecture.
1: I think this is a really valuable point because just like if somebody sits down and designs a website or somebody sits down and writes up a menu or somebody sits down and does pretty much anything, there is a natural bent to whatever that they did that will result in a, in a particular kind of interaction from the next user. And that's true for a meeting agenda. It's true for anything. And yet we mostly are, it, those things are mostly invisible to us. How can we make them more visible to us?
0: I think one of the things that would be very useful is to literally go through a checklist. I have my students do this all the time. Write down all the decisions you're making when you're designing that website. Mm-hmm. You imagine you have a blank piece of paper, or if it's a website, a wireframe that you have to design. Write down every decision you're making. You know how many options are there? What's the order of the options? What are the attributes? What's the order? And subtle ones like what? What are the how are the attributes described? To go to your earlier example of someone who's obsessively worried about every detail, maybe we shouldn't be talking about very fine categories, but maybe an A, B, C scale is enough, or maybe even a traffic light scale, a red, yellow, or green. That will help. People let go of the small differences and embrace the the stronger option. I think that's a, a good example. So going through a list of all these things um, probably makes you a little bit more aware. Just ask yourself, what is the decision I'm making? We make them so implicitly. They're so automatic that you really do have to, before the meeting, stop and write them down ahead of time.
1: It's almost like, you know, we breathe all day long. We don't think about that. But if you wanted to pr- take up the practice of meditation, you better get really good at being aware of your breathing. That's kind of the same thing you're talking about here.
0: That's right. And I I have to get much better at running meetings. So I'm going to start meditating.
1: <laughs> okay. One final question here. Uh, you note that choice architecture, designing these choices can actually be manipulative. And, I thought that was an interesting point to to be made. You made it multiple points in the book and you come back to it at the end. And as you come back to it at the end, you kind of restate the golden rule. And you, and you mentioned designing unto others as you would have them design unto you. And I, so I ask you, build on that a little bit, develop that thought. How should we as responsible, wise, hopefully moral people be thinking about this in terms of uh, business
0: interactions? The first thing, again, to, is to realize there's no such thing as a neutral choice architecture. You have to take a stand. So I was once asked by a foundation I, I got a fellowship from, how do you apply this in your own life every day? And I realized I was kind of being what well, seemed pretty manipulative because I learned whenever I'm setting an appointment by email, I always put a default time. So, you know, I, I, th- I think... Thursday at 1030 sounds like a great time. And then I add, of course, of course, I'm flexible. But it's amazing how many people start saying not only 1030 is a good time for me. So that not only gets the time to be the one that's good for me, but saves them a lot of time. Because they're not going through the calendar or three rounds. We've all had those email chains where it takes six emails to get a, a silly half hour meeting together. So I think realizing that I'm not only doing something that's in my best interest but in everyone's best interest is sort of one way of doing that having a default for most things that incorporates other people's needs is probably you know a good way of doing that
1: it's almost a a generous action to the world to your to your coworkers to go ahead and make these quick decisions that enable them to not have to make the decisions How do we as leaders then respond as people are presenting us with those kinds of decisions? You know, they have thought it through. They are trying to save us time. Uh, Do we take advantage of that? Or what's the right way to think about that?
0: It's an interesting question. And one of the things that it makes me think about is how often do I take somebody who I trust, who I'm training to be a better decision maker, and ask them the question, what do you think I should do? You know, that's a way of encouraging them to have their input and why do you think that you know actually asking not just for the facts but also for their recommendations because they've thought about this more carefully than I have
1: Eric thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing with us uh, your insights
0: Joel, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Coming up after the break, we're going to turn to the conversation with Megan and Courtney and explore another side of the hidden half of decisions. that structure plays in the decisions we make. And a lot of that structure is invisible. It happens in the conversations that we have with our teams and the conversations that our teams are having amongst themselves. If you're looking to get great decisions from your team, you need to be aware of these dynamics. If you're not, they'll undermine your results. And that brings the conversation between Megan and Courtney directly to the fore they're talking about the hidden costs of solving all the problems. If you're a business owner, you may feel like that's your job. And to a degree it is, but you're really better served by helping your team make those calls. And here's the thing, everything we just heard from Professor Johnson about choice architecture comes into play as our teams are solving problems. Only, however, if we actually give them the problems to solve. And that's what Megan and Courtney are talking about now. This is a conversation grounded in some real experience and has some boots on the ground application for really any business owner.
4: Okay, so I have to start by telling a story on myself. So, you know, as business owners, as CEOs, as executives, we think that our job is to make decisions, right? And solve problems. I mean, we get, you know, we get a lot of kudos for that. We're probably pretty good at it. Well, I feel like I'm really good at it. And I'm so good at it that sometimes I get myself in trouble. And uh, this happened recently when I heard about a meeting that our directors had in which they were expressing some frustration about a couple of things. And I, you know, I don't like my team members to be frustrated. So I was trying to think about how to solve this problem. And, you know, this and that And I was thinking, you know, might need to get HR involved on in a couple things to help out. And so I was talking to my coach, Les McEwen about this. And he did what he often does. And what a good coach will do. And that is, uh, you think you go in with one problem, you know, this is like going into the doctor and thinking you have some minor problem, and then you realize you actually have a bigger problem. And he said to me, um, in his amazing Irish accent, he said, Megan, founders make decisions, but CEOs build teams that make decisions. And you know, I was asking him, okay, should I have this follow up meeting? How should I solve this problem? And he basically said, You need to stop solving these problems because these problems are keeping you from your most important work. And so we were talking about that. Um, And he said, what you need to do is anytime a problem comes across your desk, you need to do your very best to get it off your desk as quickly as possible. And that was a big idea for me, you know, because I think I have a lot of confidence in my ability to solve problems, and apparently, um, to a detriment, and I think that I'm getting in the way sometimes of my team. And so anyway, I started just thinking about this. And just kind of the hidden cost of solving problems. Because we always think about the benefit of solving problems. I mean, nobody likes problems. We want to get rid of them, right? But actually, there is a hidden cost to solving the problems. And in fact, I think there are three in particular that we need to talk
5: about. I think this is really interesting. And I, I know that when Les was talking to you about this, he was speaking to you specifically as a CEO, but as you're telling that story, I'm thinking about me and my role as the chief revenue officer of how easy it is to do that, to just make decisions because you've got a career of doing it. And most likely you are where you are because you've made some good ones along the way, probably some bad ones too, but your good ones probably outweigh your bad ones. And the tendency to just stick with that, because it's worked to this point, you know, you you probably haven't had to make the transition of deciding not to make a decision. You know, I think Mm -hmm. what you're talking about is, is more than delegation, it's actually, maybe even deciding, you know, the answer, but not solving, you know, letting other people step in to solve.
4: Right. And if I'm really honest, and Courtney, I'm curious if this is true for you, I get a hit off of solving problems. You know, like I might complain about, oh, I got so many problems to solve. And that's easier than the work that I need to be doing sometimes.
5: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's fun sometimes to play that a little bit of like a hero role of like, oh, other people need me. Please let me step in and tell you all the answers. You know, I, yeah, it's fun. It's like a little game that we get to play in business uh, that we didn't even realize we were playing, but it is very fun.
4: (laughs) It's very fun right up until you realize that there are costs. And, you know, I don't think anybody really talks about this that on the one hand there's cost to not solving problems and there's also a cost to solving problems and really what we're talking about in this case is who should solve the problems, not whether or not they should be Mm -hmm. solved. The problem is, you know, like you said, part of why we have succeeded in our careers is because we take a lot of ownership, you know, like we see a need, we just go in and solve it, you know. And I think that can be really helpful in the early stages of our business. And it can be really problematic later on, because frankly, there are just too many problems to solve. I mean, that's sort of the nature of business is you're you're, you're solving problems for your customers, you're solving internal problems, you're dealing with problems external, Internally, like it's just a lot of problems and you cannot do it on your own. Like this is not a job for a hero. You know, this is a job Mm -hmm. for a team. So let's dive into what these three hidden costs are and just kind of have a sober moment about what it's costing us to solve problems that, you know, we shouldn't be involved with in the first place. First one is development. And here's what I'm talking about. When we're solving problems, um, exclusively, we are keeping people on our team from developing the muscle of solving their own problems. You know, this is what Les, my coach, helped me to see is like, yeah, you think you're being helpful, but you're actually hurting. You know, you're actually keeping the people on your team from developing their skills, from developing their confidence, um, and you're not really preparing them to lead the company that you're building for the future. And and that's a problem. So tell me what your uh, your thoughts are on that.
5: Yeah, I think this is a really important one. And I, you know, this might have been less, it might have been you, Megan. Someone said this to me recently, but to push the decision down to the lowest level of the organization. Yeah. And lately, I've just been saying that to myself over and over again, and even to my directors to encourage them. They, you know, You don't need to play the hero either. Like push that decision down to the lowest level that the decision could be made at and it'd be appropriate. And I think that does, that mindset allows everyone the ability to step up and step into a position where they get to build trust with themselves in making decisions, they get to display it to their supervisor, um, you know, all the way up, you know, for me Mm -hmm. to you, you know, it gives all of us an opportunity to develop that skill. And not only to build confidence, but to build trust, I think, with each other, which is what's needed for a really fantastic team.
4: Well, absolutely. And I think it was, less. Um, thank you for trying to give me credit, but I'm going to give it back to him because it was his idea. He's He said, um, push the problem down to where it belongs. You know, so even if in doing that, it exposes other problems like a skill deficit or a lack of confidence or something like that, at least now you can solve the real problem. You know, when we race in and gosh, Courtney, I've done this so many times, I just couldn't even count. Um, You know, but when we race in to solve problems, we mask the real root problems. And so Mm -hmm. uh, it just kind of perpetuates whatever keeps causing these problems. And, you know, someday when we find ourselves in that position of, oh, I'm just, I'm tired of firefighting. I feel like I'm always firefighting. You know, that's one of the things we hear often from new clients who join our coaching program. Um, Oftentimes that comes after a long season, I think, of solving problems that we really shouldn't be involved with because we just haven't built that capability on our team.
5: I have a question for you on this. Okay, tell me. Because I think that historically, you and I have worked together for over four years pretty closely. I would say in general, I think this is something that you're really strong at. Oh, well, thank you. But I wonder if it's like, do you get to these places when an organization is developing that it's just has to get realigned again? Like, is there moments where it's like, you're tempted as a CEO to fall back into that? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, I'm just kind of posing that because again, historically, I would say you're fantastic at really equipping your executive team and, you know, anybody on our team to do their work and do it fully. It's one of the reasons I love working with you. Um, So I'm just kind of curious, like, what is it about this moment in time that's been like, you know, you've kind of had to reset that thinking.
4: Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think it's because like everything's a disaster. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about this for the first time. I think maybe the language around it is new for me. This idea around the less shared with me, you know, that founders make decisions and CEOs build teams that make Mm -hmm. decisions. Um, But I think that as we're building businesses and maturing in our organizations, you know, our, Just like we talk about with the Freedom Compass, this concept that we teach uh, within Business Accelerator about where you make your highest and best contribution, that's not a fixed thing, right? And so the decisions or the problems that were appropriate for me to solve five years ago or even one year ago are not the same ones that are appropriate for me to solve now or make those decisions yes. on in the same way that my highest and best contribution To our organization today is not the same as it was five years ago or a year ago. And so I think this is just like a constant kind of giving away of your job in a way, you know, it's like we want to keep developing the people who report to us so that they can do more and more of the job we're doing now so we can step into the the role that we need to for the future, even if the title doesn't change what it means to be a CEO for me today and what it will mean five years from now are not the same thing. I have to grow into that person. And so I think that's where maybe um, just to answer your question, you know, I I think that Mm -hmm. we're just always evolving and we need to let go of more things as time goes on.
5: Okay, I might have been watching too much Rings of Power um, because I've recently been (laughs) sick, you know, but and and I do like how I've like taken this this whole podcast and now i'm just asking I, I all the questions you know
4: what i'm just building a team that can make decisions you you lead this <laughs> podcast
5: <laughs> okay so when it comes to cuz you talked about you, you know like being able to hand off parts of your job and like move yeah. on to the things that you need to step in more fully to take your organization to the next level in a sense you're kind of you are giving up part of your role. You're also giving up a little bit of your power. Again, maybe too much uh, rings of power in my life right now. But, (laughs) you know, is there ever a sense where you're just like, ah, but I didn't, you know, like, I liked having all of that. You know, it felt good. Or, you know, like, how do you kind of reconcile that in your thinking? Yeah.
4: Well, certainly every time you give up part of what you've done, you know, to narrow your focus so you have a greater impact, I think that it creates kind of a weird liminal space where you're like, okay, now what do I do? And I, I think that that's okay. We have to just work through that till we get to the other side of clarity of here's what it means now to be a CEO as I've given these things away or an executive or you know, whatever your context is. So I think the other thing that we have to be conscious of is not abdicating. And what I'm not saying here is that we just abdicate. We just sort of throw up our hands and walk off the field and leave it to the rest of the team. Obviously, the idea here is that we're we're building and developing a team that's capable of making decisions, which means that there's probably certain kinds of oversight and mentoring and checkpoints and other things that are are in play here. You're not just like handing somebody the checkbook and saying you make the decisions. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what we're saying. And obviously, that would be reckless. So I think that's a good point of clarification. Okay, well, let's go on to the second hidden cost of solving problems, which is your own depletion. Okay, so we have cost number one is development of your team, cost number two is your own depletion. And here's the reality, and gosh, we hear this all the time from new clients coming into the program, they are worn out from making decisions and solving problems. They use this language of firefighting a lot because they just feel like they're running around from one thing to the next. And it can really drain you. And, you know, I had the opportunity this morning to meet with some of our brand new clients. And one of the things that occurred to me that happens when you have you've had a season where you've just been in firefighting mode is that we end up um, not having the energy or kind of the emotional disposition to dream about the future anymore, which is probably what we're the best at. It's probably where we're making our highest and best contribution when we're thinking about the future, planning for the future, envisioning it. Um, But I think when we get depleted by making decisions and solving problems that are not necessarily the highest and best use of our time, the cost can be fatigue that really shows up in our contribution to the business.
5: Have you had that experience, Courtney? I mean, never. (laughs) (laughs) Never, I think what's most challenging about this is it usually is like a season where all of a sudden it's just fire after fire after fire, and you no. just feel like I don't know how to get back to any kind no. of normalcy. And then I I know you mentioned this a minute ago about solving problems that you get a little bit of hit, I think you also get that when you're like firefighting, that adrenaline is like off the charts. And it, there is a sense of fun in that, um, and a sense of fulfillment that you can get from that and kind of get stuck in it to the sense, like you might start creating some fires yourself, just (laughs) go put them out. Ultimately, you know, you leave that just totally burnout, totally depleted, Mm -hmm. totally unclear from, uh, the, oh man, I was about to make another rings of power analogy and I'm not going to do it because it would have been a spoiler, but you know, just can't see through all the uh, smoke fumes to know where you're actually going uh, in your business.
4: Well, and this is why, like I said a couple minutes ago, why we emphasize this concept of the freedom compass, this, you know, tool that we use to help people get clarity on where they can make their highest and best contribution. Because if you don't know what the answer to that question is for yourself, and again, this is very evolutionary in its nature. It's not like fixed, you know, where it's, you, you figure it out once and it's the same 10 years later. Absolutely not. But if you don't have clarity, on what's at stake in terms of your contribution, then it's so easy to, uh, you know, not to, to, it's so easy to default to this firefighting and get sucked into it and not get out of it because you're not clear on what that cost really is. Okay, that leads us to cost number three, the final one here of solving problems, which is distraction. Okay, back to the freedom compass again. I mean, when we're solving problems that really somebody else could or should be solving, we are being pulled away from the things that only we can do. And the cost to our business is really our future potential. I mean, we need to be very clear about that, that when we get distracted as business owners, CEOs, executives, we are really writing a big check unconsciously that the future has to pay for. And I I think that that uh, is sobering. And I think it should... Help us to get clear on what the things are. You know, we we talk about in the Freedom Compass. Our desire zone is the intersection of our passion and our proficiency. But there's also a distraction zone, which are things that we're pretty passionate about, but uh, we're not necessarily that great at. So that would be like for me organizing the office or giving direction on how I want you know things to be in the office when really somebody else could do that. Or on the flip side, the Uh, the disinterest zone, which are things that we're good at, but we don't have any passion for. And there are so many things in both of those categories that can cause us ultimately to be distracted from bringing about the vision that we have for our company.
5: And it's costly, isn't it? Can I give an example? That's your example, but share it from my perspective. Sure. So I saw you do this in a very kind of near and dear to you project that you worked on for a very long time in the full focus planner and yes. some of our very first colors um were your like brainchild I mean you worked really closely with that and I remember Joel and I were talking about hey we feel like we need to go a little bit different direction with this. I can't remember all the specifics, yeah. but we kind of said, we feel like we need to talk to Megan about maybe changing uh, the name. That's what it was of uh, the line of these yes. planners. And um, yes. I, I said, okay, Joel, you can do that. Uh, you know, we, <laughs> we joked about it. And, uh, but when we talked to you about it, you not only were like, Totally, you're absolutely right. And matter of fact, I need to step out even further from this. Like, I no longer need to be involved with this anymore. And you basically said, now the decision, y'all are going to make those decisions. I think that's a really good example of a moment you could have leaned back into this and said, because I think you enjoyed it. You had fun doing it. Oh, yeah. It was so fun. But it would have been a distraction, you know, for you to continue on in the world, the way that you had been to that point.
4: Well, thank you for telling that story. I, you know, that, that was a a difficult moment for me in that, like you said, this had been kind of my brainchild. It was my baby. I loved the process of creating um, those planners and, and everything that was involved with that, with our product team. And, and I got a lot of significance out of it. But ultimately, nobody put me in this role to be designing product at that level. We have a whole team for that who are very capable and honestly far better than I am at that. And what I had to realize is, as you and Joel were sharing this with me in this, I, I vividly remember this meeting, I had to say to myself, you know what? There is going to be more where that came from in terms of things you love and feeling that mm-hmm. sense of significance and creativity you know there there's plenty of that in the future and you need to let this go so you can make space for for what's coming, and if you don't, you're going to hold the whole company back. Um, not to mention, really frustrate your uh, head of marketing and head of product at that point, which is <laughs> <laughs> you've since gone on to, to manage all of revenue um, in that capacity. But anyway, uh, it, you know, it was a moment of decision for me, and I'm grateful that you know I had the clarity in that moment to realize I needed to let it go.
5: You know, the other area that I think is interesting with this, and we've talked a lot about this as an executive team, when it comes to distraction and like getting sucked into solving problems you probably shouldn't, is now that we've kind of shifted to this more... Slack esque type of communication yeah. that sometimes we end up getting tagged on everything yes. under the sun, yep. and it's basically like, well, I don't really need to be making that decision, but like it's right here. It's easy for me to just do it. Yep. so much so that it's it's easy to like slip into that and realize like, why am I answering these questions that someone yep. else should be doing? To the point that we've talked about just saying like, hey so-and-so is going to make this decision or yep. Yep. rather than just being silent or abdicate, like you said earlier of trying to yep. like actually pass it down to the appropriate person. And yeah. um, I think that's kind of a new, more modern technology issue that we've that yeah. kind of suck you into this distraction. Totally. Because it really democratizes decision-making and
4: visibility of information. You know, you kind of have private channels or public channels. And so, uh, you know, from, from our way of thinking, the more that can be open and public, the better. There are, there are benefits of that. But the downside is that you know, you and I and everybody else listening to the show, if you ask us, we probably have an opinion on it, right? You know, if (laughs) if it's visible, I know, I don't know who you're talking about. Uh, You know, if you see uh, somebody asking, you know, do you like cover A or cover B? I mean, I'm going to tell you which one I like, you know, but in reality, like, I don't need to make that decision. And so I do think you're right. There is a challenge in our technology where we see all this stuff and it requires a lot of clarity and discipline to stay out of those things. But I think Mm -hmm. part of how to our topic today, and you know, we'll wrap up with this part of how we, Uh, address that and say no and exercise that discipline and have clarity is by really understanding what the hidden costs of solving problems are, you know, that it, it costs us the development of our team, it costs us our own depletion, which really impacts negatively the future and it costs us distraction, uh, which again, costs us the future. And so I think getting clear on what is our highest and best contribution and then how do we, as my coach, Les McEwen says, how do we push these problems down where they really belong and then solve the problem at that level, then masking it with our own firefighting or, you know, putting our superhero cape on. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Courtney and I are not talking to you guys about this because uh, we are super experts. This is like, uh, you know, vulnerably just sharing something that I'm learning in my own coaching relationship. But gosh, this is part of why we are so passionate about coaching because, you know, so often we see our problems through our own lens, but somebody else from the outside who's an expert can see things in a a much broader way and really challenge us to grow and uh, reach our potential in ways that, you know, we just couldn't on our own.
1: These two conversations bring me back michael blastlin and the hidden half the influence of what we don't know is sometimes shocking honestly it's the kind of thing that can even be paralyzing sometimes so here's what i want to leave you with we can become aware of the influence that decisions are having in our business we can become aware of the choices that we're making and what's influencing those choices We can also be aware of what it's costing us to make all the decisions. If we're busy making all the decisions, we're robbing our team of the chance of development. We're also depleting our own energy and our own emotional stamina. Beyond that, we're getting distracted. We're just wasting our effort around things that other people could do just as well as us and maybe even better. One of the things Professor Johnson talks about in The Elements of Choice is just how invisible choice architecture is and i want to emphasize that because that ties in exactly with what michael blaslin says that there are invisible realities in the world that we inhabit and the decisions that we make are heavily influenced by those but now i think we're equipped to know what some of those things are we're equipped to know what some of those dynamics are in a meeting for instance or in any conversation on our teams We're also equipped to know what the cost is to us if we don't learn how to do that better and train our own teams how to do that better. If we don't develop those skills in our employees, our businesses will not scale at the pace they otherwise could. Here's the other problem with the hidden half. There's what we know and what we don't know, but what we know can sometimes slip out of our minds. So if you've learned something that's been of value on today's episode, I want you to talk about it with your colleagues. I want you to talk about it with your friends. I want you to talk about it with somebody close to you because if you learn how to implement these ideas by talking about them, trying them out, actually putting them into practice, you're gonna stand a much better chance of learning them in such a way that they stick with you for the long run. And that's it for another episode of the Business Accelerator podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're a business owner interested in learning more about our Business Accelerator coaching program, go to businessaccelerator.com. We help successful but overwhelmed small business owners like you scale yourself and your business so you can win at work and succeed at life. It's what we call the double win. We'll be back next week with another conversation to accelerate your business.
2: Well, first of all, it's your favorite time of year. Finally. Yes. We can act. Okay. Like I give approval for us to actually listen to Christmas music. Now that Thanksgiving's over.
3: Jingle bells. Jingle. Yes.
2: Uh, it's our holiday sale here at full focus. Oh, and we have some really awesome deals going on, especially if for some reason you missed out on our black Friday deals. This is a great time to get your planners and everything for the new year. And so we have got, uh, some awesome deals. So we've got 10% off site wide,